Let's talk about 5'9", because I think by your own admission, you're maybe the professional climber who's climbed the most 5'9", <laughs> of professional climbers. That's probably true. I bet that is true. I mean, Peter Croft and I are probably uh, probably nearly tied. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about like 5'9", because I think it's a funny grade. Like today, I, I'm not sure that if you started climbing uh, in the last even 10 years, like you quite have the same appreciation for 5'9", or 5'9 plus as as maybe you and I did when we started climbing in the 90s. What do we need to know about this grade? Yeah, the important thing to know about 5'9", and especially 5'9 plus, is that it used to be the end of the scale. So there's a lot of grade compression at 5'9 and 5'9 plus because a lot of historic routes through the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, sort of old school routes, you know, the scale ended there. So they were like, well, it's as hard as anything we've ever done, so let's call it 5'9 because that's the top of the scale. And so now it means that you can, you know, nowadays you can get on a route that's sort of old school 5.9 and you're like, geez, Louise, this is, feels like 5.11 or like, you know, at least 10C or something. And I think there's also something to be said that a lot of the old 5.9s are a particular kind of style that are extra hard for somebody learning how to climb in a gym because a lot of the styles of climbing that were achievable for somebody in low performance climbing shoes using pitons and, and things like that are basically wide cracks and chimneys and like things where it doesn't require standing on your tiptoes and you know really tricky maneuvers it's more like hard work with your whole body and that's the type of thing that's really hard to learn in a climbing gym and so i think that nowadays a lot of things that are sort of five nine plus old school you're like that feels so hard because nobody really has any experience climbing you know off with cracks i I don't know i mean i definitely have had some major experiences in Yosemite where I'm like, oh, it says 5.9, it should be fine. And then you go up there and you're like, this is so full on. You're like, oh my God. We didn't really think there was anything harder than 5.9. I mean, numerically, 5.9 was the ceiling. This is Henry Barber. And we were back east trying to do these routes in, in the Shuangunks, Never Never Land, Matinee, Coexistence, Try Again, the first five tens there. Yeah, we just couldn't do them. And then we did these our own routes out of Crow Hill, first Free Ascents of Jane and Cheetah. And uh, when I went out to the valley, I just started walking up these things that were, uh, it was unimaginable. It was ethereal. It was like myths were broken for me. Still, still wearing your Swami? Yeah, I got my Swami right here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that, that's not a Swami. That's just a piece of webbing. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> That's it. I still got it. You asked, you asked about friends, too. I own friends. I got a whole bunch of them here. Just just the fact that you call them friends is, is a bit of a red flag to me. Right now, Henry's waving around the original Camelots in their original packaging. I've never even seen one of those. That was before my time. He's never bothered to even take them out of the bag because he doesn't climb with them. Or, for that matter, use a modern harness just a swami belt, and nuts and hexes to protect his climbing. <laughs> I just never, I never used them. Henry wasn't the only person to break the 5'9 barrier, but he was the climber that relegated into a moderate grade and ushered in the era of 5'11 and 5'12, swami belt and all. I was always looking for another level You know, I wasn't a professional climber. It's been reported that I was the first professional climber, but I wasn't. 
You know, I didn't write articles for climbing magazines. I just kind of let my style and my actions speak for themselves. Today, we talk to East Coast climbing legend, Henry Barber. In the 1970s, Hot Henry reset the bar for hard free climbing and free soloing, both here in the US and abroad. At the time, maybe no light burned brighter in American climbing, but Henry never got the insider recognition of some of his contemporaries. Why was that? I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzko Hall. This is Climbing Gold. I was bullied a lot in school when I was in 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth grade, 10th grade. I was bullied, and I won't be bullied anymore. I'm not going to be bullied by anybody. Henry, how did you first get into climbing? I started uh, when I was 15 in uh, Wellesley and Sherburne, Massachusetts, and uh, originally I was out hiking, you know, with my dad. And when I was out hiking, I was always hanging out with the bigger kids, which was gratifying because I was a scrawny little runt. And um, I came down off of uh, Lafayette Ridge across from Cannon Mountain. And I saw all these guys with ropes and uh, helmets and stuff. And they come down off a of cannon. And I said, I got to try that next. Henry loved sports, particularly baseball, but he struggled with them. Climbing provided a new outlet, and his parents signed him up for programs with the Appalachian Mountain Club and let him go west during summer break to go to mountaineering school in Colorado. When I was 16, I went back to this mountaineering school, which turned out to be in Telluride, Colorado, and then I just dove in full on, you know. I was hooked. And the second year, I got arrested for being a runaway because I was hitchhiking around Colorado. <laughs> and uh, there's a funny story, actually. I got dropped off after after the mountaineering camp by this guy that was driving to South Dakota. The guy leaves Henry at the bus station in Boulder. And, uh, you know, the, the guy took a ride on Canyon, and there's an Arby's there, and there was the Continental Trailways bus station, and he dropped me off. And, like, the bus pulls in from Telluride, where my friends got off, John McDermott and Jim Dixon. I was dressed in a blue Oxford shirt and a sports coat in white poplin pants and penny loafers. And my, friend, my parents told me, you need to dress up when you travel. And there was like 15 or 16 people naked in the park at 11 in the morning. They were just doing it. They were having a major orgy. <laughs> And the cops pulled up and they said, where are your parents? And we said, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts. And the cops took us to jail because we were not accompanied by a legal parent or guardian. And I said, what are you kidding me? You see what they're doing in the park? They're screwing. They're having sex. They're making love. They're, I don't know what you call it. I'd never seen it before. So anyway, that was my first climbing trip. <laughs> <laughs> though, we, though you know the, the the real takeaway is that boulder hasn't changed much in the last 50 years 60 years <laughs> but, uh, but, but otherwise you know i'm like yeah 
you know, once once you had that kind of experience, though, how did you translate that into real climbing back at home? Like, how did you actually start climbing full time? And how did you get good at it? You know, I got good at it by climbing all the time. I climbed trees with my CMI pitons and my <laughs> black diamond or chenard long dongs, pounding them into oak, telephone poles. I had a rock in my backyard about 20 feet high, so I sky hooked up holds. And I did a lot of aid climbing because I didn't have anybody to climb and I loved all the equipment. But then I, as I got a little older, I'd start hitchhiking after school to various places and I'd meet people and then they'd bring me home. And my, my parents would always thank somebody for bringing me home because they didn't know where I was. And um, eventually when I got out of high school, I was climbing like 250, 300 days a year. And um, I went to a business school called Babson. And uh, every day between classes, I'd climb on the, you know, the brick that was sticking out. And nearby we had Wabin Arches, which is a fantastic granite bridge that was the aqueduct system from Quabbin Reservoir to Boston. So we just climbed these vertical granite faces that were, you know, probably 10C to 11B or C, and we built up our strength. And um, the thing that really propelled me in the beginning, we had no idea about training, so we didn't train, but we climbed, and we just climbed on anything we could climb. At, at what point did that start to transition into what we consider real rock climbing nowadays, like, you know, actual hard climbing on rock? Well, I started, you know, with AMC and I'd say 69, 70, 71, they really held me back, but they taught me a lot about safety. And seriously, it took me three years before I led anything harder than 5'7". It was just very slow, 5'2", 5'5", 5'6", 5'7". And finally in 71, I went back to Boulder. We went out to Castle Rock. Uh, camped over on the other side of the river there below Country Club Crack. And I wandered over to um, final exam. Established in 1964 by iconic American climber Royal Robbins, final exam was potentially one of the first 5'11 free climbs in the U.S. A challenging hand crack. To this day, the climb still has a stout reputation. But when Henry Barber showed up in 1971 to find a handful of boulder climbers giving it a go... Free climbing final exam was still an almost mythical achievement. They looked at me and they said, you want to try it, kid? And I jumped on it and made it. And they were blown away. And I, and I couldn't believe these older guys, you know, were so appreciative and so supportive. It blew my mind. And that was where I got the first kind of kick. And then I started, uh, immediately leapt from leading 5.7 to leading 5.8 and 5.9. Anywhere I went, I knew I could push it further because I'd kind of broken through this this level. So it was all happened in that 1970-71 period is when I really kind of blossomed. We didn't really think there was anything harder than 5.9. I mean, numerically, 5.9 was the ceiling. And so we heard that this guy, John Standard, who I hadn't met yet, had gone out there and climbed Serenity Crack and and, uh, New Dimensions. Out there is Yosemite. And we were back east trying to do these routes in in the Shuangunks, Never Never Land, Matinee, 
coexistence. Try again. The first five tens there. Man, we just couldn't do them. I mean, I mean, I made it up a couple of them, but they're super hard, and I didn't get them until 1972. And then we did these our own routes out at Crow Hill, first free ascents of Jane and Cheetah and things like that. And uh, when I went out to the valley, I just started walking up these things that were. It was unimaginable. It was ethereal. I I just didn't believe. It was like myths were broken for me. You know, what is 510 and 511? And so when, when I went back in 73, then I really had my eye on really doing harder things. I just wanted to climb everything. And I didn't know about enchainment. I didn't think about soloing on site. I didn't think about anything. I just thought about climbing. That's all I wanted to do was climb. And as soon as I did that, the valley kind of came a buzz because one person said, well, he just did new dimensions. The other person said, yeah, he just did Nabisco wall the same day. And then another person says, yeah, well, he just soloed this. And I mean, it, I, I was clueless. I didn't know. I just thought these walls are big. People must do this stuff on the Northeast buttress of higher, you know? And uh, I guess they didn't, but. <laughs> well, they, they did eventually, just yeah. not quite yet. Yeah, just not quite yet. So. Yeah, they just needed a little inspiration first. We'll be back with more after the break. So what attracted you to free soloing to begin with? Well, the, the first ones I did were in the Schwangunks in the rain, and that was in 1971. Again, it was we go to the Schwangunks for the weekend and it was going to be pouring rain and it was piss wet and nobody wanted to climb and I wanted to go climbing. So I just started soloing five twos and five fours and five fives. And before I knew it, I was soloing five, seven, five, eight in the rain. And um, I learned a lot from it because the friction isn't that different. You know, if your boots and your hands are wet and the rocks wet, everything's fine. But if you're, your hands are sweaty or wet and the rocks dry or your boots are wet and the rocks dry, it's slick as hell. So I said, yeah, I can go climbing on the dry rock and the overhangs. I wanted to do it because I knew it would be a mind control thing about not over gripping. You know, that's, it's something that you had, I had to really concentrate on and in off hands crack, off hands wide, off hands narrow, um, and overhanging rock. I just had to really concentrate on not gripping too hard and making sure the jams were better or my arm positions were better. And I loved I loved picking out a route that would be challenging in that way. By 1973, in the small world that was climbing in the 1970s, Henry had already established himself at the very leading edge. But that year, what Henry did in Yosemite was almost unthinkable. The Sentinel is one of the proudest formations in the valley. You see it right across from Camp 4. And the Steck Salathe is its most famed route. It remains a valley test piece to this day, a physical voyage upward via an improbable physical path. Brash, Ascending in skill and uninfluenced by what others thought was possible, Henry was about to turn some heads. We'll talk about the experience of selling the Stex Alta. Yeah, my experience, uh, I have to say, is really about doing it on site. The coolest thing about it was the variety. Hmm. 
on this Dexalfe, I had all these changes in my mood and my psych. And I was always up and I was always, I had a very good flow going. But when I got to that hard move in the middle of the slab, down below the narrows, when you're kind of going up left to the narrows, you know, I mean, this is like exposed and and thin. And I was like, wow, this is a change. And then as soon as I passed it, I was like elated that that's part of this whole experiment I'm in is of on-site climbing is you don't know what's going to come next. And uh, it was really a cool adventure. It wasn't one of my best solos from the standpoint of um, feeling of accomplishment, but it was everything I wanted solo climbing to be for me was in that climb because it was the changes in my mood and the climbing was the whole thing, you know? Yes. So how was that climb received in the valley? Like, what did that do for, for other people in the valley? I think people were blown away. You know, I went, I went off climbing for the rest of the day and, um, it was Memorial day weekend. It's actually this year, Monday, the 29th is the fifth, my 50th anniversary. Are you uh, going to go back and climb it again? No, <laughs> no, that's, that's, I'm gonna, that's a hard no. That's a hard no. Yes. That's a hard no. And, um, I don't go out of my way to find it now. Would you put Henry's uh, Steck Salathay on-site solo in context for us? Like, how big of a deal would that have been? I mean, on-site solo in the Steck Salathay in 1971 or two or whenever Henry Barber did it is pretty outrageous. You know, when you think that the Steck Salathay was rated 5'9", which is pretty close to the, the limits of human potential at the time, I mean, there weren't really that many routes much harder than that. And, and, and nowadays, uh, some Tobas call it 10B. So you're like, you know, it's not it's not an easy 5.9. I don't know. I mean, in a lot of ways, soloing this Texalathe in the 1970s on-site is, is a lot like a modern soloing Al Cap or something, you know, because the wall just seems so big and daunting. Or maybe be comparable to soloing Half Dome or something like that, because it's like such a huge face. And I, and I think actually soloing the Sentinel, uh, this Texalathe climbs Sentinel Rock, and, and the Sentinel sort of lords over camp four like when you're in the campground you look up at the sentinel and it's like a big broad face across from you and you see it all the time and it looks really freaking big because when you hike up to it just the approach gains a ton of elevation and then the wall starts above that and so you wind up climbing this really big peak it feels like it's pretty intimidating like all that to say it feels big and at the time it would have been really big i don't know it's pretty crazy Henry used each of those climbing seasons as a springboard. He traveled widely, bringing his mix of cutting-edge free climbs and free solos to each of the places he visited, often completing climbs several grades harder than the existing routes. Britain, Henry found a bold climbing culture that fit his style, along with the pub side of it. The Australians looked at Henry as he rewrote climbing standards on the continent. He traveled behind the Iron Curtain to the adventurous sandstone of Dresden, East Germany. Henry had a knack for seeing possibility and then giving his full self to the moment. I was always looking for another level. I was in Kyrgyzstan, and almost the same thing happened to me as happened to me on the Stexalfe. I was with these two Russian teams in the Tian Shan, and we were on this route. There was like 10 of us on this climb, and I went like, this is bullshit. And I said, I got to get out of here. And they, we tied two ropes together, and I wrapped off. 
and walk back down the glacier. And I stood there, you know, in camp for two days, looking at this gorgeous face. I was the leader of the U.S. team. And uh, I went to Volodya Shatayev, the leader of the Russian team. And I said, I want to climb that. And he said, well, we're going to, we're going to climb together in um, three days. And I said, yeah, I'll go do it tomorrow. I'll come back the day after tomorrow, and then we can go climbing. And he said, niet, niet. And I said, yes, well, I'll go do it. It'll take chitiri. Chitiri is for chitiri horas, which is, of course, hours in Spanish. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's going to take you four days. And I said, no, it's not going to take me four days, four hours. So um, this story goes on for quite a while. It involves a Russian girlfriend and getting interrogated by the KGB and stuff like that. But <laughs> anyway, long story short, I left at two in the morning and I soloed this beautiful new route on this peak, Free Korea Peak in Kyrgyzstan. And like the Stexalthe, it was very similar in that I was climbing by headlamp, completely pitch black, and I was in this 18 to 20 foot world. That was my headlamp. You know, it was so cool to be up there. And of course, I was listening for any stone fall. I was listening for any any possible thing. I went over my first Berkshund and uh, had to go over two at the bottom. That was, that was terrifying because I knew they were there. But when I did the first one, I kind of went like, well, that wasn't so bad because you can't see. You can't see down into the Berkshund. Your headlamp just goes into black, blackness, you know. Last 70 feet was the hard part. But I, I learned something completely new. And that was 1976. I really kind of got the whole feeling of soloing free in the mountains. And, you know, I had a seven millimeter rope in my pack. I had two ice screws, wooden shafted ice axe and a little <laughs> alpine hammer. And that was it. It was the freest I've ever felt in the mountains by a mile. And being in the dark was even more freedom because instead of seeing blue ice versus neve you were kind of feeling it out and doing things in this 18 to 20 foot world moving to your own rhythm and um what i learned on the way was something completely different than what i expected and and what really what that was is that i think i really had to try more in my life that i didn't think i would necessarily be able to make and that completely switched my whole thinking about climbing then, was trying to do things knowing that I might not make it. And I was never worried about death. I was never worried about dying. But I knew that the real edge for me was in trying to do something, doing it under control, and being able to figure out how to do things and, and down climb and get myself out of there. That just got me excited to do more and more um, soloing as the years went on. I mean, how were you not worried about death? It's like you're free soloing spires and thunderstorms. You're, you know, climbing in the rain. It's like you're on-site soloing first ascents. Like the rock quality is questionable. Well, I wasn't worried about dying because you're going to die. Well, I'm like, it must have occurred to you. I mean, you know, if you're 600 feet off the ground free soloing, it's like you still yeah, I mean, but you're it's still not aware a, that. It's not an omnipresent thought. It definitely isn't. It's something that got, you know, it, it happened to me in May of 76. I went to solo this um, 
climb for ABC TV, American Sportsman, called The Strand on Gogarth. Gogarth is this incredible sea cliff in Wales. And there was cameras there. And I thought about it then because I thought I'm going to die in front of my girlfriend and in front of all these cameramen. And the pressure was so horrendous, I swore I'd never do it again. And I, did, and I never wanted to film or be filmed or had pictures taken of me soloing because I didn't want anybody around. And uh, later, a year or two later, I was going to Britain every year. I go in the fall and the spring. I went 14 times. And uh, I was climbing on this thing called Bow Wall at Bozegrin. And uh, again, an off with crack. And at the top of the crack, which is a crux, there's a move out right onto a slab. And I went out there and um, got established on the slab. And I didn't want to make the next move. And I'd shuttle back into the crack and go down and rest and get a knee jam and go back up. I tried it three or four times. And there's like 10 or 12 people there. And I said, why am I doing this? That was my thinking. Why am I doing this? I'm I'm doing it now because they're there. Not because... This is soloing. It's, I'm not alone. So on the strand, what took over my mind was dying in front of these people. And on Bow Wall, what took over my mind was, why am I doing this? I'm not, I'm not doing it for me anymore. You know, or I am doing it for me because of my ego. I don't want to fail. But I ended up down climbing and getting out of there. But <clears throat> I just, I guess my mind has always been in a different place. That's kind of how I think about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've certainly had those same kinds of experiences. You know, yeah, you would imagine you'd have them in spades. I'm, I'm in, in, in such high admiration for you know what you've done in difficulty because the rehearsal and the the knowing how marginal a sequence is that you've got to be absolutely perfect. I, I don't have that in me. I mean, I that my barrier is way way below there. Henry touched on competitiveness that he experienced. You know, some of it he's was stuff brought on by his own immaturity, but it, some of it's just the nature of it. And I'm curious, like, have you felt that kind of competitiveness through your climbing? Like, was that something that was always there or did it come onto the scene kind of when you really entered this spotlight? And I'm curious whether you think competition, whether it's good or bad. I personally have never really experienced that much competitiveness in climbing. And I think that's partially because the type of climbing that I'm known for just doesn't have that many competitors. You know, there aren't that many people vying to to free solo big walls and things like that. And I think as a result, a lot of the, the other professional climbers who maybe otherwise would be competitive with me just kind of aren't because they're like, oh, well, you're doing something totally different, something that I don't want to do at all. And so, you know, I think that I wind up having a good relationship with with like basically any other high-end climber because I'm like, you know, we're all just doing our own things. Like, it's fine. That said, I think that in general, the climbing world nowadays is maybe less competitive than it was in the the 70s and 80s and and maybe slightly less cliquish. And maybe that's just because climbing is so much broader now. There's more room for everybody. Like, it used to just be one tribe that was sort of fiercely competitive within the tribe. And now there's so many different types of climbing and so many different areas and so many different folks doing it. It's like, I don't know, it's just a bigger world. You know, it's... It's a much, much bigger pond, so it's hard to be the big fish. 
You know, it's like there's always somebody better than you. Mm-hmm. And even if you think you're the big fish, you can just go to some random gym and some 12-year-old kid is going to be climbing better than you. And you're like, oh, geez. You know, it's like, like even the best climbers in the world, somebody like Adam Onder or Alex Magos, you know, they can go to random gyms and, and find kids that are, you know, probably may, maybe not outperforming them, but like, you know, pretty good. <laughs> like there's always somebody better nowadays. What was the, the competitive factor between climbers back then? And did, did that inspire you? Did that motivate you? Did that turn you away? Well, there's different kinds. In Boulder, they didn't want to tell me about South Platte because they thought I'd go down to South Platte and, you know, do a bunch of the routes that they had their eye on. But when we got together in Eldo, we would be, you know, happy working on a route together. In the Schwangungs, we were all together. We were like a big, happy family. We were yo-yoing the hell out of stuff. You know, we would go up, put a piece of gear in, lower off the top piece of gear. Then Wunsch would go up and he'd get, you know, a bit further and try to try a move. Next guy would go up, Bragg would go up and place the next piece of gear. And then it was very friendly. That carried on through the gunks all the way through the 80s, um, that kind of style. Of course, it was more befitting of sport climbing than it was trad climbing, but it was a really friendly competition. But I think Yosemite, I think it was pretty competitive. And I think that it wasn't expressed that way. It was expressed more through jealousy and attitudes. I wasn't well received. I think some of it was because of my immaturity, but some of it was unspoken. You know, it was just nobody was going to go solo a big wall you know, without a rope. Nobody was going to try to launch out on some of these things. Just doing stuff on site like that really pissed off the locals. And 75, it was raining a lot in the valley. And I just come back from Australia and I had completely changed my style of climbing by then. What happened there was I was all about on-site climbing. All I wanted to do was climb harder and harder and harder but it was all about tenacity and experience and creativity and figuring out how to rest and figuring out how to keep calm. So all the stuff that I learned from solo climbing was now applying to routes that were either bolder or thinner and hard to protect or, or whatever. And uh, they could see it and they were pissed. They were really pissed. And the they, they thought that these were their climbs. I didn't know that somebody was working on fish crack. Nobody was working on fish crack. And um, I just went up and did it. So that's kind of what it was like. And I didn't mind it, except that I didn't, I never felt at home there, unfortunately. I mean, I never did drugs. So I, you know, I never did, I never smoked a joint in my life. I'd never done any kind of drugs. I like alcohol, but I wasn't in that scene. So it, didn't, it never felt right. Was it like that abroad, like, say, when you were in Britain? Britain was very different. Pete Livesey was overtly competitive with me, and I didn't enjoy it at all. Whereas with my mates, my, my climbing mates, guys like Joe Brown, who I love to climb with, and um, Jim Curran, Pete Minx, Al Harris, it was competitive, but it was more competitive sea level girdling or something where we would all go off in the pouring rain after a big night in the pub and people would be falling into the ocean on these sea level girdle traverses where you're going 3,000 to 5,000 feet horizontal 
you know, six to 12 feet off the deck. They'd be climbing sideways on these massive sea cliffs through the steep, narrow coves known as Zons. It was hilarious. Everybody was soaked and laughing, and we were throwing lines across. And it was, that's what it was fun. That was competitive, but it was hilarious. It was fun. So the competition, my favorite feeling I ever had was definitely between Bragg and Standard and Wunsch in the Schwangunks. And that continued with Kloon and Kevin Vine and Russ Rafa and everybody well into the 80s. But elsewhere, it wasn't as fun. We'll be back with more after the break. Why do you think so many of his peers, like John Backer or the rest of the sort of USME, why do you think they get so much attention still versus Henry? You know, and a lot of those people aren't even alive still. Like, it, it's so interesting, and yet, you know, you can still go talk to Henry. No, I honestly think that a lot of the Stone Masters have gotten more attention than Henry Barber over the years simply because they climbed longer. They had more prolific careers in a way. Because Henry Barber had some of his most meaningful climbs in the early 70s. And then by the late 70s, he basically dropped out of the climbing scene to, to some extent, at least the cutting edge. And then you have somebody like John Backer or Peter Croft who were making meaningful contributions to climbing throughout the 70s, 80s, even 90s. You know, you have somebody like Ron Kalk redefining his climbing and, and putting up Magic Line in the early 90s or maybe mid-90s. Or somebody like Lynn Hill freeing the nose in the 90s, mm-hmm. you know, even though she had been a stone master in the 70s as well. So, I mean, I think that maybe part of the reason that we think about the Stone Masters more is just the fact that their careers spanned several decades. You know, like Peter Croft is still putting up new routes around his home in Bishop, California, mm-hmm. and he's still at the crag five days a week. And so it's easy to think about Peter Croft a lot more because, you know, you're still climbing routes that he put up last year. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I mean, Henry Barber, his best climbing days are almost 50 years ago yeah. now. And you're just like, man, it's just harder for that to feel relevant. Yep. Do you think of Henry Barber as like a light that burned really hot and really fast? Well, and actually you could say he was sort of burning the candle at both ends or whatever. You know, he did so much and had such a world tour. I mean, to redefine grades in multiple countries on on multiple different trips, just like, wow, he, he was so prolific for a short period of time and then sort of dropped out of the scene. Part of that was injury. Henry's shoulders began to dislocate. Part of it was that he dove into a career in sales for the outdoor industry. And it was also that the rest of the climbing world embraced new ways, using cams, eventually sport climbing. And Henry was happy and proud to stay set in his ways, even as the rest of the climbing world started to push the standards even higher. But so when you, when you look back at it, what are you most proud of in your climbing? I'm most proud of definitely sticking to a self-developed style, you know, always doing more with less. You know, I enjoyed climbing really hard routes in boots, like RR-type boots, up to 5.11 C or D, and I enjoyed climbing barefoot up to 5.12 B. You know, I I get on a plane, and um, all of my rack and everything, except for the rope, fits in a thing about the size of a football so I can go anywhere. I feel like I could go anywhere and go climbing anywhere in the world. And I think the people that look up to me look up to a time or 
a style that made a huge impression upon them. And I think climbing is more than more than difficulty. It's it could be if you're an alpinist that you selflessly give up the major expense of an expedition and you go save somebody's life. If you're a climber and you go and you try at the hardest level in a place that's really intimidating. And I think, you know, the E grades above E78 in Britain or that on grit, those are those aren't, you know, 515, but they're they really take some push to get to get out there on that, you know? So I um I admire that and I've definitely epitomized that for people that have either climbed with me or observed my climbing. I just kind of let my style and my actions speak for themselves and they'll be long buried in the past and long buried in the history, but I feel good in my own skin for what I did, you know? And uh, that, that's what I'm most proud of is, is being performing at a super high level for about seven years, you know, on Norwegian waterfalls and Alpine wall solo and big walls, free climbing solo and R and X routes that I put up. And I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm stoked and, and, and usually not with sticky rubber and, you know, I mean, at the sticky rubber is fantastic. These, these cams are fantastic, but I don't think I ever failed on a climb because I didn't have something with me. Henry, you said earlier you were talking about some of the the tension in the valley. You know, you brought up your like that your own maturity level may have have come into that. I guess, how have you changed and evolved as you've gotten older? I think that a couple of things happened to me over time. Initially, I realized that what I was doing was climbing at a level that was so far beyond what was being done. I was in a headspace that wasn't very healthy. You know, it wasn't dangerous to myself. I was so self-absorbed maybe with that level that I was climbing at and thinking about it and trying to go to the next place that I really wasn't caring that much about the people and the situations that were existing around me. And I think what changed over time was that, like I said earlier, I, I became comfortable in my own skin that um, I should be just as happy with what I've done and not gloat or feel overconfident or think it's a big deal. But then what happened is that when I got more and more into sales and being a business person, I think I opened up a lot more being interested in what other people were doing. You know, how are your sales doing? How was your climb today? You know, how was your trip to such and such a place? And by shifting from this kind of egocentric place I was in, some of it was self-preservation and some of it was immaturity to one where I was really genuinely interested in what was going on around me with other people. That's really the big change. And uh, I think it makes me a little more interesting person to be around. But it also opened my eyes to a lot of the things that made me successful as a climber. And then I tap into those 
in everyday experiences. You know, you've, you've got your swami, you've got your rack that'll fit in a pack the size of a football. What's inspiring you today as a climber still? Well, the things that inspire me are still some of the same things. Some of the initial people that inspired me were definitely Royal Robbins and Yvonne Chenard and Joe Brown and Herbert Richter in 76 when I learned about Paul Preuss, those people. But the thing that really inspires me today are some of those same people like Chenard giving away his company. It's that ability to move from the past to the future. And if I had done different things, I probably would be climbing high 513 or 514. And any of the people that have started out in one style of climbing and have taken it to another level um, inspire me. And Chenard did, for sure, still does. Joe Brown did. But, you know, Lynn Hill will always inspire me, you know, free climbing the nose. And Alex will always inspire me. Um, Peter Croft will always inspire me. Jim Danini's inspiring to me just at the level that he's still climbing at. Just his energy and his ability to transform and, you know, really get feel comfortable in a, in a new world with lots of young people and still charge with the same energy that he had 50 years ago. So there's a wide range of people, but it's the people that have made those transitions that really inspire me, for sure. Thanks, Henry, for sharing your story. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by Evan Phillips, me, Fitzcahal. Music today by Brennan O'Connell, Brian Bombadil, Our Many Stars, Drexler, and Matthew D. Morgan. Tracks are courtesy of Track Club or the artists themselves. Our executive producers are Ben Endy and Jonathan Retzek for RXR Sports, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>